Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been quite a busy week this week. Sanctions, bribery and fraud all over the place. Usual roundup of cyber attack news at the end. Principal documents linked are in the podcast description. We'll start this week with sanctions news. There's a decent range of sanctions news this week, much of it allied to International Women's Day, which was on Wednesday the 8th of March. In the European Union, the Council of the EU has announced sanctions against nine individuals and three entities for their role in committing serious human rights violations and abuses, particularly sexual and gender-based violence. The press release provides the new listings include two acting Taliban ministers for higher education and the propagation of virtue and the prevention of vice, who are behind the decrees banning women from higher education and gender-segregated practices in public spaces. Officers of the Moscow police station, responsible for arbitrary arrests and detentions, as well as torture and other cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment in the context of censorship and oppression led by the Russian authorities. The listings will also target high-ranking members of the Russian armed forces whose units systematically participated in acts of sexual and gender-based violence in Ukraine in March and April 2022 in the context of Russia's unprovoked and unjustified military aggression against Ukraine. Government officials commanding South Sudanese militias responsible for the widespread and systematic use of sexual and gender-based violence as a war tactic in the country the Deputy Minister of Home Affairs in Myanmar slash Burma, and the Karchak Prison in Iran, the Syrian Republican Guard, and the Office of the Chief of Military Security Affairs in Myanmar slash Burma are sanctioned in view of their roles in serious sexual and gender-based human rights violations. Links to the press release of the Council of Europe are available on its website, together with a link to the official journal of the European Union, which links to the relevant legislation, are both in the podcast description to Washington now, where sanctions have also been imposed against those committing serious human rights abuses against women. This time, the focus is Iran, where several individuals and entities have been sanctioned, including officials within the Iranian prison system and high-ranking officials within the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corp. The detail from the U.S. Department of Treasury can be found in the podcast description. The U.S. Department of Treasury has also sanctioned a further 39 entities connected to shadow banking and Iran. The press release provides several multi-jurisdictional illicit finance systems grant sanctioned Iranian entities such as the Persian Gulf Petrochemical Industry Commercial Company, the PGPICC, and Tri-Alliance Petrochemical Company Limited, Tri-Alliance, access to the international financial system and obfuscate their trade with foreign customers. 
Iranian exchange houses create front companies abroad to enable trade on behalf of their Iranian clients with foreign currency transactions maintained via internal ledgers. PGPICC is the marketing arm of sanctioned Iranian petrochemical conglomerate Persian Gulf Petrochemical Industries Company, PGPIC, which generates the equivalent of tens of billions of dollars annually for the Iranian regime. Sticking with the U.S., sanctions have also been imposed on three individuals for their involvement in human rights abuse of Vladimir Karamurza, the Russian opposition politician and anti-war campaigner. The link to the press release can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions this week, we report news that the mother of the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, which is fighting in Ukraine, Violeta Prigozhina, has won an appeal against the imposition of sanctions against her by the European Union. The court was not satisfied that the EU had made out the necessary level of proof and that the imposition appeared to be based solely on the basis of mother and son relationship. It appears, however, that the rules only concern a sanctions listing from the 23rd of February last year and that a decision to renew the designation from 14th September last year remains in force. Links to the press release and the decision of the EU General Court are in the podcast description. At the moment, the judgment is only available in French. That's it for sanctions news this week. Now let's turn to fraud, where there is a good range of fraud concerning our old friend abuse of the various COVID-19 schemes which have been imposed around the world. So we start with the response to COVID-19 in the U.S., where the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia has announced the conviction of a woman who, along with her husband, fraudulently obtained Paycheck Protection Program loans. In total, just over 2.5 million US dollars was wrongfully claimed and then used for purposes unrelated to their business. The husband had already pleaded guilty to related offences in 2021. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Over to the UK where we go to our old friend the Insolvency Service who seems to do a lot of the legwork in relation to abuse of the various schemes which were designed to help the United Kingdom build back from the COVID-19 pandemic. The scheme which is prominent among these stories that come out from the insolvency service is the bounce back loan scheme. Now there have been quite a few this week so I'm going to take them in the order in which the insolvency service published them on its website. So on the 6th of March the insolvency service announced total directorship bans of 22 years for two directors who abused the bounce back loan scheme. Both individuals claimed funds which were uh, to which they were not entitled. Rukina Begum has been disqualified for 10 years and Simon Gorgin for 12 years. On the 7th of March the insolvency service announced that James Irreri is to be banned for a total of seven years for claiming funds to which he was not entitled from both the bounce-back loan and the other scheme, which was the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme. And finally, on the 8th of March, the Insolvency Service announced that two Sheffield-based businessmen had been banned for a total of 17 years for for abuse of the bounce-back loan scheme. Michael Higgins has been disqualified for eight years, and Dean Miller for nine years. Links to all three full releases are in the podcast description. 
And finally, on fraud this week, three former employees of G4S, that is the G4S subsidiary, G4S Care and Justice Services, have been acquitted on seven charges of defrauding the UK government over an electronic, an electronic tagging contract, which G4S had provided to the government. The SFO has said that there is no longer a public interest in the pursuit of the case. Plenty of criticism of the SFO online, together with equally defence uh, because of underfunding and resource shortcomings. If you want to spend a few fruitful hours searching through it all, as I did on Saturday morning. Now, that's it for fraud. We turn our attention to bribery and anti-corruption. This week... Good range of stories. We start with the US where Stanley Black & Decker, the tool manufacturer, has, according to its annual report filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, self-reported for what it believes may be payments in breach of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977. The company is cooperating with both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission as the investigation continues. We'll stick with the US for the next story where the Securities and Exchange Commission has charged Rio Tinto PLC with failures in its bribery controls. The press release provides, The SEC's order finds that in July 2011, Rio Tinto hired a French investment banker and close friend of a former Guinean government official as a consultant to help the company retain its mining rights in the Simindou Mountain region in Guinea. The consultant began working on behalf of Rio Tinto without a written agreement defining the scope of his services and or and his deliverables. Eventually, the mining rights were attained and the consultant was paid $10.5 million, presumably US dollars, for his services, which Rio Tinto never verified. The Securities and Exchange Commission investigation uncovered what the consultant that the consultant acting as Rio Tinto's agent offered and attempted to make an improper payment of at least 822,000, again presumably US dollars, to a Guinean government official in connection with the consultant's efforts to help Rio Tinto retain its mining rights. Furthermore, none of the payments to the consultant was accurately reflected in Rio Tinto's books and records, and the company failed to have sufficient internal accounting controls in place to detect or prevent the misconduct. The mine has not been developed by Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto has agreed to pay a civil penalty of 15 million US dollars to settle the charges. Links to the press release are in the podcast description, or the link to the press release is in the podcast description, should I say, because there's only one of them. Now, <laughs> to a mildly diverting story in that Transparency International has been declared an undesirable organization by the Russian Prosecutor General's Office. The link to the press release detailing TI's response to the declaration can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on bribery this week, we delve back into the archives of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. First, a story which is genuinely in the archives since I covered it in the second episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast way back in April, I think, last year, which reported the conviction of Roger Ng, the former Goldman Sachs banker. At the time, I reported the criminal activity concerned actions Ng took through roles with Goldman and its subsidiaries through One Malaysia Development Burhand, 1MDB. 
1MDB is a Malaysian state-owned investment vehicle designed to benefit Malaysia and its people. Ng and his co-conspirators laundered money and misappropriated funds from 1MDB, as well as making bribery payments to 12 Malaysian and United Arab Emirates government officials contrary to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977. Ng and his co-conspirators also laundered their criminal proceeds through the U.S. financial system. They amassed enough artworks, jewellery and high-end fashion items to make a Russian oligarch blush, but perhaps most fittingly, and in an example of dramatic irony that would make Sophocles proud, I can't believe I'd said something that pretentious, that's the second reference to the classics in that podcast, apparently, they provided funding for a Leonardo DiCaprio film, and that film was, of course, and ironically, as I said, The Wolf of Wall Street. Well, the news this week linked to that is his sentence. He's been sentenced to 10 years. The glory of the DOG press release is in the podcast description. The second piece from the archives is not quite as far back, but takes us to episode 42, where we reported that in the US, two former executives of Fox, the global media organization, were on trial for wire fraud and money laundering which related to allegations of corruption and bribery in the acquisition of major footballing rights. That's association football, not American football. Well, this week, a jury convicted them. I suppose anything relating to sentence or appeal will come out over coming weeks. Now that's it for bribery. Interesting range of stories, I hope you'd agree. Now to money laundering. It's been a little quiet, but there are a few stories to keep us interested on money laundering. First, something which we've covered on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast before now, and that is the Australian response to alleged money laundering in its gambling industry. This week, it is news that Australian, the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, Austrac, has launched a second specialist unit to address this threat. Nothing is on the Austrac website yet, but the news is being widely reported in the media following the announcement to industry professionals at the Regulating the Game conference in Sydney. Another money laundering story this week comes from Norway and news that an investigation is underway into whether three corporations in which the Sovereign Wealth Fund has invested are involved in some way in financial crime. The firms, which have not been named, are under investigation by the Council on Ethics for the Norwegian Government Pension Fund Global. The annual report for 2022 provides. In 2022, the Council commenced the assessment of a few companies with respect to serious financial crime. All of them operate in the financial sector. Two of these are European, while one is based in Asia. The link to the 2022 annual report is in the podcast description. Wonderfully, it's also in English. And finally, on money laundering this week, an organised money laundering network in the UK has been broken up in a joint operation by the National Crime Agency, the NCA, and the Metropolitan Police Service. The NCA press release provides, money would be sent from one shell company to another in a complex web of transfers before it was sent out to international accounts held in countries including Germany, the Czech Republic, the United Arab Emirates, Hong Kong and Singapore. The link to the full press release is in the podcast description.
Now, a quick story on regulatory enforcement before we look at this week's cyber attack news. First, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority is investigating a number of sites in the East End of London suspected of operating illegal crypto ATMs. This is part of a longer-term plan um, to take action against such unauthorized and, frankly, illegal um, crypto ATMs after similar um, investigations into sites in Leeds in the north of England. And finally, on regulation, the Financial Conduct Authority has announced it will collect the Treasury's economic crime levy from July this year. Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. And now we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by turning to our old friend, Cyber News. There have been a lot of cyber attacks this week, and we'll have a look at those with uh, as well some, some looking to the future. We'll start with the Pierce County Public Transportation Benefit Area Corporation, which is in the United States, which has announced this week that it was the victim of a ransomware attack on Valentine's Day. The U.S. Marshals Service, a federal law enforcement agency, which is part of the U.S. Department of Justice, has announced that it was the victim of a ransomware attack that compromised confidential information. This is the second such attack on a U.S. law enforcement agency with an attack earlier this year on the New York office of the FBI, which we mentioned in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. You may remember that we reported the city of Oakland had been the subject of a ransomware attack last month. Well, the Play Cyber Gang has announced that it carried out that attack. Sticking with victims subject of cyber attacks, the city of Waynesboro confirmed on Wednesday that it had been the victim of what it described as a potential cyber attack and that it was likely that data from the attack had been stolen and already put online. In the US, the Modesto Police Department has indicated that last month's cyber attack was in fact a ransomware attack where personal data was stolen. In Australia now, away from the US, in Australia the National Maritime Museum has been the subject of an internal cyber attack. The individual alleged to have committed the attack is an IT support worker from a third-party contractor. An Indonesian subsidiary of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia has been the victim of a cyber attack this week. It involved access to project management systems. In Spain, a hospital in Barcelona has been struck by a cyber attack which resulted in the cancellation of a number of operations. A couple more and then we're done. The Canadian engineering company Black & McDonald is reported to have been the victim of a cyber attack. The company has yet to make a public statement on the matter. And finally, the European Central Bank has announced that it will hold cyber attack stress tests on banks which it supervises next year. Half wondering if that's a little bit late, but I suppose there's a great deal of preparation which has to go into it. Nothing in terms of detail on the European Central Bank website at the moment, but I suspect all the detail on that is yet to come. That's it for episode 49 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again all being well next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. 
Have a genuinely great week, everyone.